I get excited when something works well, is made better than it needs to be, performs better than I expect, and I don't have to worry about it constantly breaking. The aspiration of wanting to wear a vintage watch, especially when you're a young person and have no personal experience with that watch historically, is the most hipster thing I think I've ever heard in my life. There's nothing more hipster than having a made-up memory of wanting to wear a watch that was made 80 years before you were born. On this week's show, we have the rights and wrongs of vintage watches, the cultural appropriation of smart watches, reviews from Omega, Hanhart, Mundane and Protect Philippe, as well as Rick pitching to be the next Panerai ambassador. And finally, your chronograph needs you. Enjoy the show. Greetings and welcome to a blog to watch weekly. This is episode 50, believe it or not. And I think officially as it's 2023, Happy New Year to everybody, we're going to call this Season 2. So welcome to Season 2 of a Blog to Watch Weekly. We are joined, as ever, by our stalwarts, Ariel and David. How are you gentlemen? Happy New Year to you both. To you as well. I'm actually really looking forward to 2023. <laughs> David, are you looking forward to 2023? Don't we all? Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Happy New Year to you guys as well. And how many days into 2023 do you think you can manage to still be looking forward to 2023? At what point? Give us the over-under when the wheels fall off 2023. Uh, I don't know, but I know that when we'll be seeing people in uh, Geneva and Watches of Wonders in March, they'll still be saying Happy New Year. I'll tell you that for sure. <laughs> okay, so shall we, make it, shall we make it our aim on this show each week to try and be the last podcast stroke media I like to continue to say happy new year to everybody that we have on the show hmm. i would vote for continuing to ask ryan reynolds to respond if we had to choose between <laughs> the two good one he, he's dropped off our radar hasn't he that's, hmm. that's my fault wormed right out of your your focus what happened there i take full responsibility i actually thought for a second you were gonna talk about the other ryan that you did uh i thought that's who you were talking about that you did the superlative podcast with we didn't make calls to him on the show to respond to did, did we i mean he was pretty good about it no i think rick has had his secret meeting and stuff he just forgot to tell us about it and now he's <laughs> acting all surprised like oh ryan reynolds yeah it's it, it's gonna appear on the new dedicated social media and instagram and new watch podcast stroke blog the ryan and rick show oh i like the sound of that you know what i just made that up and i like the sound of it too that belongs on nickelodeon <laughs> yes so yeah i thought you were comparing ryan schmidt to ryan reynolds there but happy new year to ryan uh, schmidt and ryan reynolds so the ryan's everywhere happy new year yeah it's like there are a lot of people called richard in the watch world Maybe, maybe there now is a takeover by people called Ryan, but there we have it. Anyway, I suppose that actually leads me on to a good question, which is, does anybody see any good films while we play a blog to watch weekly Watches Watches? Any good Christmas film content with some watch spotting in it? Uh, well, I noticed, I think it was on HBO Max, a show called The Head, where one of the lead characters was really prominently wearing a Certina. And it was, okay. it was, it was, a, you know, it was like a diver's chronograph. You could tell multiple times from the dial and the clasp. And it just sort of made me wonder, like, was this product placement? Because I know the guy, I think he was supposed to be Swedish. And I know that Certina does really, really well in Sweden. So it's very likely that maybe it was a natural placement. Like, you know, someone said, what would somebody like this from this country be wearing? And they would have chosen a Certina. So I have no idea if the Swatch Group had anything to do with it. But 
it's actually sort of fun to play that game. Like, is that a paid placement or is that a natural placement? Like, sometimes you really have no idea. Yeah, Sotina does seem to be a, an unusual one to have just kind of stumbled across. That's a prop master that really knows his watches if he's, you know, shopping around for Sotina as the kind of non-paid-for placement. Was the film any good? It was one of those, you know, like, whodunit miniseries that went on to season two, gets less less believable each episode. <laughs> Interesting exposition. There's a murder at a science research station in the Antarctic. Kind of cool. You're not sure if it's just people or something supernatural. It turns into one of those horrendously convoluted, like... There's multiple murders, blah, 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 blah. And it just, it's, it, it loses believability. So it's got some good atmosphere. And the, if, if you're really into Sertina, this is the show for you to say. Good stuff. Well, was it more believable than Glass Onion? Because I watched that. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And we got quite a bit of watch content, in particular, a very nice panorai that Dave Batus, is it Batty Batista? Batista? Batista. Batista. It's a gold Dave one, Batista right? Batista was wearing it's a gold yeah. uh, pan rye. I think it's a Pam 1070. Maybe if Pam submersible gold tech carbon. That's kind of like wearing a gold submariner in a way, right? Like they're available and there's a certain type of person. It looks cool. Everybody wants to be that guy. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like my pan rye's and I do think the gold ones are particularly attractive when worn by someone who is, you know, six foot nine or however tall he is and as wide as he is tall, then yeah, it, it does pull off. And considering that Sylvester Stallone is now wearing 36 mil Piaget polo in a new TV show called Tulsa King. I didn't see that film yet. I don't it's know. A t- it's a t- TV show. We talked about it a couple of episodes ago with Andrew from Watchfinder. Yeah. I'm Googling it like, up. Oh. oh, that's what it is. Yeah, I see. I know. So it. now that Sylvester Stallone has given up wearing 46 mil panerais for tiny gold piages, maybe Dave is the man to take panerai forward again uh, in the big guy wearing big watch. Okay, I think I, think I have a theory uh-huh. here. This is what happens. When you're such an accomplished collector as Stallone... Once in a while, you'll, like, find some vintage watch that you like for some inexplicable reason. Like, only uh-huh. he knows, right? Like, only Stallone himself knows why he's into that Piaget. He's probably got some story behind someone that wore it and he was into it. And because he's into this watch, he's just like, screw it, I'll wear it in a film. Like, you know, just to be, like, that kind of a watch guy. So I don't I, – I would be surprised if this was – if this watch was cast on him. And my suspicion is just for whatever random personal reason, he decides to say, screw it. No, no brand wants to pay me in this movie. So I'll just wear whatever <laughs> weird, weird watch I want to. That, that's my guess. That's I my mean, guess. The problem is Still it one. really suits him. It's really good. <laughs> he hates Richemont. He does not like does he Richemont. Or did he not like them in the first place? Well, he didn't have a good, fo- he didn't have a good experience with Panerai. He felt that they owed him uh-huh. a lot more. Um, and Panerai is owned by Richemont, and he blames Richemont for the issues he had with Panerai. So I don't see him jumping in bed with a different brand. Okay. Well, I mean, if Panerai are looking for a new, you know, I mean, I'd try and volunteer myself to be Panerai's new guy just because I do really like them. We love you, Richemont. We love you, Panerai. Look, you know what? There's no one out there, you know, really pushing the gold Panerai. We have the actor Dave Bautista, mm-hmm. of course. But, you know, I, I'd say that that's a viable thing because, again, that's that's an untapped thing. People are, are trying to say, what's how much cheaper can we get with Panerai? No, no, no. You say, You're going to go the opposite direction and be like, I want to spend a lot more on the say, Panerai. Hold on. Bring are in you the suggesting gold. I would be a cheap date for Panerai to sponsor? Is that what you're saying? I think you're saying that 
cheapness <laughs> or otherwise, you'd be a very encouraged and enthusiastic. I am date. happy to sell out. No problem. Yeah. No questions asked. I'm happy to sell out uh, for a gold, a gold <laughs> luminar. So send them my way, Mr. Panerai. Anyway, David, uh, any good movies? I've sent you guys an attachment in the chat. Maybe maybe you wanna wanna check it out. Okay, okay. Right, hold on a second. I have to download this. Jeez, jeez, Zoom. Are you sending me spam because it's asking me to download it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Here the question is like, <laughs> what Sylvester Stallone would look like if you if you mirrored his face, like whichever side you choose, and it's a completely different. <laughs> hold on a second. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is this is descended quickly. It looks like Paul McCartney on the right hand side. Yeah, well, it's a it's an interesting <laughs> experiment. I love how we have an entire entertainment economy dedicated to people who have way too much time. Says hands. the person doing a watch podcast. I mean, these are at least real things in the world. This is like, how can I make celebrities look more embarrassed with Photoshop? <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll see if we can get that one past the show notes team. <laughs> But I quite like that. That's good. Throw the watch in there and you got a That's deal, fine. David. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> I'm on it. So I also rewatched Top Gun Maverick. So lots of IWC and post design on the occasional Rolex to see within there. David, any Christmas highlights, film or otherwise? Good Christmas presents, watch related, anything? Well, I tried to surprise myself with the with a relaxed evening of the Glass uh -huh. Onion uh, viewing. And, and that totally didn't work out because 20 minutes into it, I was out of it. Uh, you know, maybe I had high expectations after the first episode and then I, you know, started it again and now I'm an hour into it and I still couldn't watch it. But there are some nice watches in there, it has to be said. So you, you just need to do it as a journalistic duty so that yeah, there's a reason you have to watch it. Yeah, yeah. I just like seeing how hard Daniel Craig acts. Like, he definitely tries so hard. It's nice to see him mm. trying so hard to do that accent. It's ne never quite clear what the accent's supposed to sound <laughs> yes, like. It's all over the place. <laughs> never quite sure, like, where did you grow up? Around what people? Like... Who were you talking to? Like, so I yeah. enjoyed that part because he seems genuinely befuddled, but also proud with himself the entire time. So it's like, you know, yeah. it, for some of the Edward Norton, of course, is great. The plot. I mean, was there a plot? I'm I not enjoyed really sure. it more than the first one, I have to say. <laughs> I thought it was actually. Yeah. I, I was I was able to suitably guess enough of what was going on, my own plot spoilers, which my family hate me doing. But it was there was just enough mystery that also kept me interested. So it was quite I mean, Daniel Craig was basically channeling Sean Connery, which was that starts off the film with the right accent and then, you know, 20 minutes into it, in Sean Connery's case, he's just changed whatever accent he started with to Scots. And Daniel Craig, after 20 minutes, I don't know what accent he started with, but it's not the same one he finished <laughs> with. That's for sure. Hey guys, it's Simon from the Escapement 24 YouTube channel. And my nomination for the best watch release from last year has got to be the Tudor Black Bay Pro. Firstly, the time of this release was either a happy accident or completely inspired, because it came out right at a time when everyone was getting back into GMT complications. I love how Tudor's designers have taken inspiration from the much-loved Rolex Explorer 2, which is one of my favourite vintage pieces, but I think the design strikes a perfect balance between the vintage and the modern aesthetics. Finally, the price point of this watch is fantastic, and I think it really offers tremendous value. Catch up with you guys again soon.
We're going to drop in the occasional piece of audio, some predictions, some favourite articles, some favourite watches from those that have contributed to the show at last year. So listen out for them. But what do we think? We want some New Year predictions from you two that we are going to hold you to in the Christmas episode 2023. So David, give us a, an easy prediction and give us a black swan far out prediction so what is the most easy prediction you can give us that you're almost certainly going to get right in 2023 hmm it's a good question uh i think um rolex will make another lefty watch okay um, good. and then not do another one for five years okay to to, to fully confuse everybody <laughs> uh i think that that's that's probably going to happen and far-fetched hmm it's a really good question. That the Swatch Group will rejoin the watches and wonders thing from next year. Oh, good. Like that, like that. Ariel, give us your dead obvious prediction and your far out prediction for 2023. Okay, that's a good question. I have not had any chance to think about this. Well, I would say that for 2023, we're probably guaranteed to see a lot more colors. You're going to see a lot more green watches, a lot more blue watches, a lot more just random colors. I think that that trend is going to continue, and I hope that it's also going to continue in materials because I love to see uh, new colored materials. I think with something like the Moon Swatch, what disappointed me is that you have these wonderful colors in these very fragile materials. Cool materials, but fragile materials. And so... I think that long ago, people are sort of over fragile colors, you know, plastics and things like that, or, or colored aluminum and ceramics or carbon that is, you know, even if you scratch it, the color is still on uh, the entire base is, is the color. I like to see more and more of those enter the space. It's difficult to do with carbon because it's basically black and it's hard to make it something, you know, bright like yellow. Um, but that's something that I think uh, we'll definitely see more of. In terms of something that is not entirely likely, I'd like to think that other companies are going to get on board with the certified pre-owned, you know, with Rolex. And we might see a couple of very small brands doing it. But I think it's going to take a little bit longer for the other groups like Richemont, LVMH, and Swatch Group to really wrap their minds around what certified pre-owned looks like for them in any sort of corporate approach or mass approach. And remember, it's still so easy for them to collect pre-owned watches and just sell them to third-party dealers. There's a whole universe, a galaxy, really, of these just various networks of dealers that work with one another. And they'll be happy to take pre-owned watches. And so it is, I think, going to take a lot, a lot of momentum and innovation for your sort of rank-and-file watch brand to truly get on board with the certified pre-owned thing in as grand a way as, as, as Rolex has. Good stuff. I'll give you mine that... Omega will try to ban Jack's launches of Watches and Wonders this year, just like they did last year. And just in light of our lot of previous conversation, that Panerai will become the watch to wear by the end of 2023. So there you go. Here's my two. Continuing on your good week, bad week, how about we do a good year, bad year for 2022? So I will start, and I will start with the negativity to get over it quickly. To me, bad year in 2022 is this uh, habit that some of the big brands seems to have where you have to beg to get your pieces. I wish this could quickly end because I think it affects the, the, the fun in the watch game. And maybe a little advice for all of us, the watch enthusiasts, I think if we stop playing the game, then the brands will no longer do it. In the sense like if we refuse 
to wait a year, two years, five years, whatever it is to, to get a watch. If we refuse to buy other pieces to get the one we really want, I think this will effectively end. So maybe us, the watch community, we have a role to play in that game. So that's it for the rent. And then good year, 2022, I've been really happy and delighted to see yet again the rise of, of the independent watchmakers i think it's really good for the industry it shows that we have a bright future as watch collectors at watch enthusiasts and as, as watch companies in in general it also shows that mechanical watches are no longer just a device a tool but they are actually a an amazing vector to display your own personality and values and they, they quickly turn into sort of technical superlatives or art pieces and yeah, I think it's cool it, it's it's a nice industry and, and I'm very happy to to see all this, the, this independence having being in the spotlight so in, in that regard 2022 was really amazing ciao some news just to catch up on and one article from watch pro that escaped us last year we didn't get a chance to speak about it was actually to do with breitling and this is and we've spoken about this a couple of times early in 2022 but cvc capital have sold a big chunk they are now no longer the biggest shareholder in Breitling. They have sold mm. shares to an organization called Partners Group, just over 50%. CBC Capital have 23.6 from Watch Pro. And then the rest is going to go. George, George Kern has about 3%, and the rest is being sold to wealthy and private professional investors. So the question is will we see an IPO at Breitling? And if we do, Will you be interested in buying any? If if you had the money, would you be buying a bit of Breitling shares based on what you know about what's going on at Breitling? What do you think? Hmm. The the problem is what we've seen is that you know a lot of these success stories are that are those because or can be so successful because they are a one man show, and there's no pressure from uh, from uh, you know profit hungry or um, you know like just investors and and stock owners and whatever. It's just one guy who dictates the tempo and and does whatever he wants and is not afraid of the uh, general meeting at the end of the year or whatever or early next year that he's gonna get fired or something like that. Does whatever he wants and that's that's. That has proven to work so well, um, so many times. By contrast, you know uh, these publicly owned companies sometimes just get go down this rabbit hole of just pumping out products and just uh, getting a little bit too haphazard and a little bit too trigger happy when it comes to launching new products and removing them from the market, and then it, it just becomes a mess. And so that's one of my concerns. And the other one is whether George Kern would stick around after having cashed in, mm. um, you know, so generously. Yeah, Ariel, what do you think? Breitling a buy, a hold or a sell? Well, I mean, we discussed a lot of this in the past. And I think that it's it's very clear that the goal is to sell it to somebody else at some point, right? Somebody ultimately has to want to buy it. And in this instance, what we're seeing is a lot of sort of passing the hot potato here. Hmm. CVC Partner knows that there's sort of a limit to the actual profitability you can get out of a watch brand, right? You can only buy it and just get so much more profit out of it. Maybe they were told that they could get more profit out of it. They're obviously selling more than the start, but you know, watch brands are extraordinarily expensive to maintain, to innovate within, machinery, products, and things like that. 
So they've had a couple of really good years of innovating and putting a lot of money in there so they can increase profits and brand equity. And they've done that, but ultimately they need to find a buyer. So what they've been able to do is sort of cut up this, this responsibility, right? They divest to a point, someone else comes in, now they're holding the hot potato, right? And then if you can't sell to one buyer, meaning there's another corporate entity like some type of rich LVMH who I don't think would buy Breitling. That's a, you know, just one of a very small number of companies that would be potential buyers. The other outcome is, like you said, go IPO. And rather than have a company buy it, be like, okay, the public buys it. And again, you're, you're trying to anticipate what an owner wants to do as an exit. These aren't companies that want to own for the long run, enjoy long profits over a long period of time. They want an out on their investment. I don't think that becoming an IPO would be a good thing for Breitling, right? For Breitling as a company, uh, we know that watch brands and publicly traded entities don't mix well very often. It's just something that doesn't really comport with what we like about watch brands. We want as much money as possible to be pumped back into R&D. These aren't high profit margin companies to begin with. The products themselves cost a lot more than you know, fragrances and sunglasses to make. So I think from an enthusiast perspective, we don't really gain a lot if the company is owned, you know, by uh, shareholders. So I think that it's, it's, there's going to be somewhere along the line where that hot potato burns them and they lose out. And we don't know who that's going to be, because I think if it's someone who is an individual, like, like us investing in a company is, is, is a publicly traded thing. I mean, ultimately, do we really think that they're going to continue to like grow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger? I mean, they're in a great place right now. They make a great product and I think they're going to be on this good momentum. But is Breitling going to make five times more money <laughs> six years from now? Doubtful, right? <laughs> like maybe if it made 30% more money or 50% more money, that would be impressive. But some of the types of multiples they need to make, I'm just, I wonder how, how reasonable it is. So I, I think that someone's going to be, like I said, stuck with this very hot potato at some point and have to try to figure out uh, uh, what to do. And, and, and I think that our, from our, our, our perspective, we should think about what's best for Breitling because what's best for Breitling will ultimately lead to the best product experience for, for buyers like us in the future. I broadly agree, but I do wonder whether there is just a little bit of a zeitgeist right now amongst the kind of geek community that see if there was, you know, five, 10% of Breitling available for you know, effectively over-the-counter purchase where there are actually quite a number of people would fancy owning a little bit of a watch brand because it doesn't come up very often. Yes, you can buy shares in the big conglomerates, but that doesn't quite feel the same as somebody being able to say, there you go, buy shares in Breitling, get to go along to the big posh AGM in Geneva and all the rest of it. I can, I can imagine them making something of it. So it'll be interesting to see you watch this space. I should also add for the record, A, this is not financial advice, but B, Sylvain will be very pleased to hear that a story he <laughs> followed last year, which was, was my daughter going to buy a Breitling or an Omega resulted in the purchase of a Breitling. So Ooh. 43 mil Navi timer. So she's very happy about that. Merry Christmas to my daughter. Hi everybody at a blog to watch and thank you so much for hosting me on your podcast this year. I'm truly honoured to have joined you on those. Thank you so much. I'm also a massive cheapskate, so I don't think it's any surprise to learn that my favourite watch of 2022, and by extension my favourite a blog to watch article, is the one that did the most for the least. Christopher Ward's C1 Belcanto somehow combines artistry, sculpture, complication and quality all together in one package for less than the price of a Tudor Black Bay. 
I keep expecting to find out it's just an elaborate or elaborately expensive prank, but so far it genuinely seems that Christopher Ward have done the impossible and achieved watchmaking alchemy. The even better news is that after the limited run of 600 pieces, there's going to be ongoing availability of the bel canto with new dial colours, so it really is a time for both having and eating cake. How about that for a Merry Christmas? First up then, we have a story from Scott. This is a bit of a theme for this week called Pride at Work, Why Some Watch Brands Service Their Vintage Watches and Others Won't. This kind of pivots between Zenith and Rolex. Zenith and Longines, two brands that have really come to the fore in terms of dealing with vintage watches, in terms of promoting, you know, a kind of club mentality of own a vintage one of their watches and Rolex who seem to be going down the line of see if it's over a certain age we're really not that interested unless it's something absolutely spectacular but if it's just a standard day date and it's 40 years old you know it's not something we're going to put our seal of approval on. And I wonder to what extent that folds into the whole certified pre-owned. So, gentlemen, what do we think about vintage watches? Do you own any vintage watches? Do you have a favourite brand that you go to? Uh, a little hidden section within your Chrono24 profile or eBay profile where all your wee vintage gems are stored? No. <laughs> Good to know. Let's, it's, let's, it's funny. Let's move on and talk about something yeah. else. <laughs> yeah, same here. It's just that we are not, not that into vintage watches for some reason. And and neither uh, vintage-inspired watches that much, as long as, you know, well, if they're modernized in some way and, uh -huh. and, and more fun to look at and, and appreciate them, that's great. But, yeah, somehow... I just don't. I just don't have a vintage phone, a vintage record player, a vintage car, a vintage nothing. Basically, uh -huh. uh, you know. So why would I have a vintage watch? Um, I, I I appreciate everyone who knows those things inside and out, but I just feel like there's a reason all these things have advanced so far over the last you know, number of decades, and I just don't want to say goodbye to to all the precision, all the quality feel. Uh, that you know, uh, modern watches radiate with, and that are basically missing from vintage watches. So I'll, I'm going to give a story. So this happened several weeks ago during my travels, and I think it really relates very well. And I was at a dinner, and it, I, I don't want to name any names uh, to protect the innocent, but there was there was some people from a, from a watch brand, and there was me, and there was another we'll call it medium pers media personality. And this person starts talking about the charm they have with some of these vintage cars they own about how much they suck, basically. He's talking about how they handle poorly, how they don't turn on a lot, how they break down, how fixing them is an issue. And this is whole litany of things. And he's, and he's speaking so happily about it. And, <laughs> and I'm just sort of entering the conversation being like, you know what? That all sounds like a nightmare. Like, I love the way those cars looks, but everything you're talking about owning and driving them sounds so unfun. I really like my modern cars that are faster and handle better. And basically all you're saying is you like that they're just, like you're just excited that they're bad machines. <laughs> like you're so excited about how unreliable they are. And I completely don't identify with that. I get excited when something works well, is made better than it needs to be, 
performs better than I expect, and I don't have to worry about it constantly breaking. And this is a really big split in the mentality. There are those people that are genuinely charmed by how crappy an old watch is. That, you know, like it doesn't work that well, and the dials kind of permanently turn to the side, and <laughs> hands are kind of cu- coming off. And I mean, there there are some wonderful ones out there, but those are extremely expensive because they're they're collectible. They're not meant to be worn. And that's what I think everyone in this conversation likes to do is wear their watches. Mm-hmm. And we all know that from a practical standpoint, wearing vintage watches is usually a very bad idea. <laughs> so just wearing the new ones, of which there are so freaking many, I guess there's just never been a deficit of watches where I've had to go to vintage. So is this just an emperor's new clothes that actually everybody just needs to take a chill and realize that, as you say, vintage watches are vintage for a reason they're old they break easily they're delicate they're not as well constructed and that you need to stop kidding yourselves on that actually this is that this has any intrinsic value unless you say it's incredibly rare or has a piece of history associated with it that makes it more expensive for the likes of the auction world the aspiration of wanting to wear a vintage watch, especially when you're a young person Mm -hmm. and have no personal experience with that watch historically, is the most hipster thing I think (laughs) I've ever heard in my life. Uh, (laughs) There's nothing more hipster than having a made up memory of wanting to wear a watch that was made 80 years before you were born. Okay. Yeah. We can, <laughs> I, I think we can take away exactly what you think about vintage watches. So does that just mean that Rolex are right and that the kind of investment the likes of Zenith and Longines are putting into their vintage is going to be and remain incredibly niche or eventually of its own accord just peter out? Well, it's a very interesting investment. And in a lot of ways, I agree with it. And it's I think it's a little bit more simple than the way you're making it out to be. They want to make sure that if you find a vintage Longines out there, it's in good condition. And it's going to be in the best condition if they service it. So, which, so encouraging people to send back the vintage ones to them creates consistency in the service that they get, which means that the world has more better quality vintage ones, which in a lot of ways makes you feel better about the new ones. It's like, oh, if the old one still looks this good, doesn't matter if it's been restored, looks this good, I feel comfortable buying the new ones because I think that they're going to look you know, just as good in the future. This is a product which ages really well. I have a high degree in confidence in it. So investing in making sure that your vintage products look good is actually, in a long-term marketing sense, very, very smart. It's a little bit less about catering to a market that, that wants to wear them and just sort of responding, saying, people want these restored for whatever reason. It's in our best interest to make sure that there's good ones out there because that'll create a higher value. And that means people will be more likely to spend, you know, retail price or more on our new ones. And I think that that's a lot of what's going on in their mind. I, I don't know to what extent any of you follow uh, Periscope on, is it Periscope, is that how you pronounce it? On Instagram, he's always one for having a look at watches that are vintage. Sure, sure. He's, he's been on Superlative, Jose Perez. There's one, there's a bit of a story running at the moment with some friends, colleagues, associates in the media. Well, well, you can go check out Instagram to uh, have a look at the story behind a particular Rolex that's been doing the rounds. Is there a point at which vintage watches just aren't vintage watches? They're just a pile of parts that happen to be in an old case. How much of the watch needs to actually be original for you to still feel 
that it's actually a vintage watch or does it not actually matter is, is it an ethereal thing okay it might matter if you're trying to sell it at an auction but actually it's to do with the fact that you feel this watch has passed through so many hands in the past it might have a story you know it might have a story you don't know this is really about transparency and what the traditional collecting world values in terms of originality we know that when it comes to all types of antiques, whether it's art or furniture or automobiles, something being in original condition is important. It doesn't mean that it has to be in original condition, but people want to know the story behind how it got here. If it looks better than original, that's an important part of it. And so the market definitely has a place for entirely original you know, antiques and ones that have been restored, but the person buying it should know more or less what it is. And when that has such a big part of who buys it and why, you probably should have high degrees of scrutiny around transparency. People should not lie or hide information like that. You should say what you know. And I think that sort of the, the Perez scope agenda is to say, say what you know, don't hide anything. You need to be more sort of excited about discussing the real world of these things as sort of historians and academics versus being just like the sleaziest car salesman you can be. So I think that it, it's, it's really about exposing the transparency and the real stories of these things and minimizing things like fraud. We had a guest column this Monday from the one, the only, the legend in his own lunchtime, uh, Tim Mosso. We're all big fans of. I've spoken to Tim a number of times. Uh, he reviews, I think, what he considers to be the ultimate smartwatch. The, the, you know, I suppose if you're spending this much money on a watch, you'd hope it was pretty smart. But the Patek Philippe 5207P. Go check out Tim's article and also tell us in the comments on the show notes for the show. Anyone else you'd like to hear from as a guest columnist? If there's someone you think would make a good writer for a particular watch or something particular for a blog to watch. What do we think of the 5207P? Is it the smartest non-smart watch around? I like it because it fulfills my category. All the perpetual calendar stuff is in date windows. It's consistent. It wins at perpetual calendar world. But what do you guys think? It's a it's a very great watch, but I want to end the practice of smugly calling a non-electronic smartwatch a smartwatch. <laughs> I was exactly going to say the same thing. <laughs> maybe funny. i don't need to elaborate Tim, that further that was your first and last guest appearance as an author <laughs> no no it's not tim's fault tim actually his, his intention is right he wants to sort of show that there's this isn't just a sort of like accumulation of parts and it's more than just let's just throw a bunch of complications together there's a lot more that goes behind it so there is a lot of nuanced engineering there for sure but this isn't the first time the watch industry has tried to been like, we've had really smart things for a long time. We can call our stuff smart watches too. I'm like, this is, you know, they have, what is it, cultural appropriation? This is the ultimate <laughs> cultural appropriation, right? Like, like, just stop it. Your watches are great. Come up with your own terms to explain that they're complicated. Please don't confuse people any more than they need to by calling an entirely non-electronic watch a smart watch. We get it. They are very smart. Go ahead, David. This is the, the grand smart, smart watch. You know, like, not, not, no longer grand complication, but grand smart watch. <laughs> Something like that. I look forward to finding that category on the Patek Philippe website. You know, how much of a smartwatch would you like? Just a regular smartwatch or like, a, <laughs> is there something else that they make? Like, because if you go there, there are like complicated watches and then grand complications. I know that there's like a separate category, right? 
Yeah. And this certainly falls into that because it's like a tourbillon, a minute repeater perpetual. It's got all the toys on it, to be sure. And as the ultimate flex, the tourbillons in the back where nobody can see it, which I think is always the sign that you've got more money than you actually want to show off. Uh, yeah, because it's otherwise such a discreet watch, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. I think it just looks like a, a leather rotary, uh, to be fair. I don't actually... <laughs> I appreciate the design. I appreciate... I think it holds together as a complete thing very well. I'm not sure I actually like it, though. I've just always found the calendar across the top a bit weird. Don't know why, mm. considering it is incredibly well balanced, but it's just never... It's These kind of Pateks never never really done it for me it just looks profoundly uncomfortable as a watch it's really thick it's very very heavy it's got relatively short lugs well maybe not so short but still it's like it typically looks like the watch that you see in uh in the lounge at dubai airport or wherever <laughs> you know on, on somebody's wrist and it sticks out and away from their wrist and this the strap is still very stiff and it just wobbles around and you can tell it's blood and it's just so much weight and you know people wear these things it's it's you know we should not say that these are not being worn these these watches are out there maybe not the minute repeater to beyond but but also those i mean i've we've seen these washes out there and yet they can afford to be so freaking uncomfortable uh, you know at least some of the time and as you say to me you know sure it's smart in a way but at the same time if i look at a watch like this i wouldn't want for it to be a, a modular thing and Patek's perpetual, you know, calendar is a lot of the times it's it's just a module in the dial side of the movement. So I feel like it's it's a bit of a cheeseburger in a way. Like, oh, you want another layer? Then it's a double cheeseburger. Sure, you want the perpetual? We will put that module on top. And I understand that there's more to it than that, but technically not that much more, right? So you can just, it's, it's just flex, basically. I, I much more appreciate something that is an integrated movement that was developed from scratch, and Patek has done a number of those as well. So yeah, as you say, this module or this display is not that great of a, of a solution uh, for something like this. And this is definitely, uh, you know, several hundreds of thousands of dollars in a watch or maybe more. Yeah, well, go and read the article. And in particular, if you've ever wanted to interact with Mr. Mosso, you will find him very active in the comment section of this article. So go and have a chat with Tim while you have a read at the article. I've got a series of hand hearts here actually on my desk. These are versions of the 417 ES. We have a review of one 39 millimeter model. There's also a 42 millimeter model and there's two newer models. We did a review of the original model that they re-released. And, and what I like about this watch is it's, it's you know, it, Dave is not going to like it because it's vintage inspired, but I just happen to like these sort of vintage military watches. It's, it's meant to look like sort of a, uh, a mid-century German pilot watch. This particular one apparently came out in 1954, but prior to that, Hanhart was making substantially similar ones. And what is great about them is they're able to have a relatively fair price point using Swiss-made Solita movements here. These are manually wound movements that um, are pretty nice. And uh, the first version uh, that I reviewed did not have a flyback, but since then they, they've come out with ones that have a flyback complication. So I just I just thought these were pretty good value. I like that they have the Boone strap, which uh, is stylistically something I like. Offering both a 42 millimeter wide model and a 39, I think gives a size for pretty much all wrists out there. Hanhart is one of those sort of traditional German brands. And, you know, they have some weird quirky stuff out there, but you know, I think this is a very smart thing for them to come out, really 
gets people into the brand in a way that shows, you know, one of their best classic models. It's, you know, conservative, but fun enough at the same time. Definitely a lot less strange than some of their, you know, other modern watches that they've come out with. So I thought this was a good move from the brand. Not really sure where they go from here, but I'm, su I'm suspecting that they're going to continue to play with this design uh, a lot and focus quite heavily on the sort of uh, vintage side for a while. And this price was just under 2,000 euros. So I, I thought this was pretty good. And I felt this would be a crowd pleaser for sure. Yeah, I am personally a big fan of Han Hart. Uh, I had a Primus Desert Pilot on loan for a wee while, which I really liked. And find their chronographs incredibly legible. I don't know why, but they do seem to just manage to squeeze a lot of legibility into the same size of case as everybody else. But for some reason, maybe it's just my eye. I don't know. I just find that Hanhart chronographs are incredibly usable. Not that anyone's actually got a reason to use a chronograph, but if I did, if I could figure out some novel reason for actually using one, at least I'd be able to read it. I used it today. Did you? For what? Uh, I ordered some food. Uh -huh. <laughs> And I was with my son and they said that, you know, it would be ready within 20 to 25 minutes. Uh -huh. And I showed him <laughs> how we would use the chronograph to time that. And, you know, I was like, okay, look at this little hand here. Where does it need to be, you know, for when we need to come back to see if it's ready? I just, I don't know. I mean, it's not the most sophisticated thing, but I tried. It was, it was, it was a use. <laughs> and, and did it arrive in time? And if it didn't arrive in time, where are you going to get your pizza for free? No, they, they did it within time. It was done in 19 minutes. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, how many of the uses of a chronograph do you think are actually food related? Because I suspect that most of them are, that the uses of chronographs tend to be boiling eggs. Three categories for sure. Food, laundry, parking meters. I think those collectively maybe 85 or 90 percent of all modern chronograph use. Maybe somebody needs to take that on board with actually the design and the layout of the chronograph. I agree. Should we do a survey? Yeah, go on then. But here's the thing. We'd have to have multiple choice and for there to be multiple choice we'd actually have to know. So I guess what we need is people announce what they do normally and then we take the most common ones and then we have a poll from that okay. to further break it okay. down so so we need like 10 different things that you do on any type of regular basis with your chronograph and then from there we'll try to make a poll and of those 10 we'll see what the real winners right, okay. are okay there's our first project for 2023 on a blog to watch weekly so you can put something in the comment section of the show notes we're also now on youtube so you can also put something in the comment section on the Blog to Watch YouTube channel for the show. And if you're listening on Spotify, you can send us a voicemail message directly via Spotify or add a comment to the show on Spotify. And if all that fails and you just want to stick to email, you can email us podcasts at a blog to watch.com. And this is normally where I'd then give out like a postal address for those that don't use email or anything. Do we actually have a post? Is there a postal address for a blog to watch? When was the last time? What were they? What were they? Send? They'd send their suggestions. Like, has anyone ever... Where was the last... It's not, it's not like a sweepstakes where we're, like, <laughs> legally re required to have a physical address. <laughs> when was, was the last time you received a letter that wasn't a bill or a summons or a Christmas card? That wasn't creepy? <laughs> that wasn't creepy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. So, yeah, go and check out Hanhart. David, what did you make of this? I'm a big bun strap fan. Do you like a bun strap? 
No, because I have relatively narrow wrists and uh, they just don't look that great. And you know, if I were wearing a, a leather jacket or something like that on a daily basis, then sure, I would rock a bootstrap, but I, it just doesn't fit with my regular outfits and uh, it, it's just not that comfortable either. So if I can avoid the bootstrap, then I will do everything in my power to do that. Even though it looks freaking cool, I admit it, it, it it's a cool looking thing for sure. Wait, I want to second what you said again about the the poll. So if you, the audience out there, send us enough different things that you do with your chronographs that we can get a list, we will do a survey, we will make it into an article on the blog to watch, we will wait a little while for to get responses, and we will know definitively what your peers do the most with their mechanical chronographs. I can only imagine that this is going to go bad. I, I already know. What? I already what could know it be? What we're going to be suggesting. Like, this is going to go horribly wrong. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, send that in <laughs> and we will we will monitor that and uh, you can take part in the poll. You can make more than one suggestion. And Don't make Rick regret this. Don't make Rick regret this. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I use my chronograph for is timing the length of Rick's regrets. Anyway, right... <laughs> <laughs> Let's move it along. Here's a little bit of audio from Sean. Do you use a 30-minute or 12-hour chronograph for that? <laughs> I, was, I was just wondering that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I, I use the Omega chiming watch <laughs> so I can hear my regrets as well as see them. Anyway. Right. <laughs> a watch that cries with uh, you. There we go. See? See, look at, us, look at us spitballing and coming up with new ideas to give free to all those watch brands. Okay. Let's talk about another watch. Hey guys, Sean Lorenzen here to introduce my latest column in the Time Machine series, all about the Omega Speedmaster Teutonic. Although everyone who's in the watch community knows and loves the Speedy and knows most of the story, the Speedmaster Teutonic is one of the most overlooked and visually interesting Speedmaster designs ever released. Confined to a few years in the early 1980s and restricted mostly to German-speaking markets, this was an extreme, streamlined, futuristic look that was intended to take the Speedmaster into a whole new visual direction for Omega. This was one part of a much larger design plan that the brand had going at the time. There are multiple references of Seamasters using this same design language. It's the same general design language that brought us the Constellation Manhattan, which is still the basis for the Constellation today. But the Speedmaster Teutonic takes this to its most refined and most complete level. What do you guys think? Is this Speedmaster design something you're interested in? Is it too far from the classic Speedy to catch your interest? Is it due for a revival? Let me know, guys. Okay, Sean did a Time Machines article on the Omega Speedmaster Teutonic and the watch design revolution that never was. I have seen one of these. I am aware of it. I actually quite like it. And I think... This kind of feels to me what Omega would re-release if they were wanting to take on the kind of Rolex Explorer 2 type vibe, but with a chronograph. It's got that kind of feel to it for me that actually, genuinely speaking, Omega could take the Speedmaster back in this direction again, uh, and it would prove actually at the moment really quite popular. Do we think there's any chance of Omega reviving such a design or is this one to stay in the past, Ariel? I mean, they've they've revived just about everything else. It's only a matter of time. Yeah, that is true. Uh, 
I mean, and they'll do it, and everyone's be like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe you didn't do the essay. Why'd you Why'd you wait so long to redo the Teutonic?" Um, it's gonna happen. It'll look. It'll maybe be a limited edition. Looks just like that, or they'll make a whole new collection out of it. It's 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 just a matter of time. That's all. It's just a matter of time. What's the uh, when was this first release? Is there a, is there a random anniversary coming up? Probably. Who, oh, always. who knows? <laughs> So, David, would you look forward to seeing a re-release of something along the lines of the Tonic? No, I want to see something new from Omega for once, uh, just for a change. Um, maybe, maybe it's just me, but uh, for some reason, I'm always, you know, just longing for for these brands showing off what they can do today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in terms of design and, and just just create something new and uh, that is not hundreds of thousands of dollars like the chiming chronograph that they did, which is cool, sure. I like the two tonic in the way that I like this design code, you know, the integrated bracelet, this like, it feels like a, a proper machine, like that was designed by engineers and product people and not by marketers or a committee or something like that. So I understand the appeal of the two tonic, but uh, I just, I would love to see something new uh, from Omega and also from all the other big brands, to be fair. I mean, to be fair to o- Omega, I think they're the ones that have resisted the integrated steel sports watch the best i'm not sure that there's anything in their current lineup i'm just racking my brain Mm. here that i would consider to be an integrated steel sports watch i mean david you wrote several articles about integrated steel sports is there an omega that springs to mind that really represents their version of what everybody else is doing a blue face steel integrated sports watch I mean, the Aquaterra is, is, is the one that comes closest with the blue dial and, yeah. and that plays on it. But the luck structure is is, uh, is regular as opposed to integrated, mm. unless you put it on the rubber strap where, where there's this extra link in the center uh, attached to the case, which just screws everything up. But I, I feel like they have so many steel bracelet watches on a blue dial that they are well catered for when it comes to... <laughs> Uh, you know, you know, when it comes to appealing to this market, but it is true that they don't have that angular uh, lock structure that we've seen on Eblos and APs and yeah. uh, basically three dozen other watches by now. So maybe this will be the one that uh, fulfills the need a, a wee reinvention of the Teutonic. If Omega or these other watch brands were to come up with something brand new, I guess it's kind of staring into the minds of watch designers. What would they come up with? I mean, where is the thing? Take Omega, for example. Where is Where would they go to do something that is genuinely new? Would it have to be a new case? Would it fundamentally need to be a new case shape for it to really count as something new? Is everything else just iterating from the Constellation or the Speedmaster or the Planet Ocean? And if they did, would they have to kill something else off? I mean, it's, it's half the problem with these brands inventing something new that in order to do it, they have to kill off something that's quite popular and makes them a lot of money. I mean, Omega's been doing this. Look at the last 20 years. Yeah. Look at all the random things they come out with and kill. I mean, you have to admire them at least for not having too much hesitation to do that. Mm-hmm. Omega, you know, for all for all we like to like joke or prod them about silly decisions they make, Omega still left left field, <laughs> you know, is, is left field focused a lot. Like they'll come out with weird things enough of the time that a couple years later, you're like, oh, they're discontinuing that. But you're just happy they tried it. Once in a while, it's cool. They just do weird stuff. So I think it's it's not weird to think that it'll come back. I mean, 
look at how versions of the flight master came back as a smartwatch uh -huh. not smartwatch just you know a analog digital watch things like that they're prone to doing these things they they take themselves seriously enough that each one of their their historic case designs is a is a precious part of the brand that must be treated correctly and revisited from time to time else the memory goes away so they have a lot of reasons to revisit the stuff like every decade or two talking about a brand that i suppose would largely be considered a one-trick pony in terms of watch sign ariel did a review of the mundane stop go wi-fi wallcock and fortimon classic wristwatch i have to say this mundane wristwatch for 300 bucks i i cannot see any reason why anyone who was just looking to spend 350 dollars on a watch would not just buy this watch as opposed to buying anything that was a fashion brand or anything else why on earth this would not be for pretty much everybody their first watch with proper design i love these mundanes i i just think for the price they're shockingly good value considering the design cred the history they've got a little bit of everything we've been talking about this show in terms of context swiss history general history a story you know i don't see where you can go wrong with this but have you still got the mundane wallcock ariel and is it hanging somewhere significant i don't see it in the background did you have to give it back um it is in the house it was commandeered so someone uh in the household liked it enough that stick it somewhere so i don't get to see it very often but it is there i feel like we should try to get like mundane as a podcast advertiser we'll just take that thing you just said <laughs> and just cut the ends off there and just boom there I it think is we should try to get mundane to give us a watch to give away to people who contribute to the poll that we've just announced so maybe we should work on that i think we could i think we've done we've done mundane giveaways yeah. before i think we look i i'm with you on this and that's why I think Mundane likes to work with mm. us is because we all kind of agree that if you're just getting to watches, you want something basic at this price point, like it's really decent. They make, you know, automatic versions yeah. of the Swiss Railways uh, wristwatch. Um, that's cool. The wall clock is great. Oddly enough, it's the first time that they've done the stop to go function. So for me, that's, I think, the most interesting thing. And unfortunately, we didn't really do a video. So you have to just imagine it in, in the written review. But what happens is the seconds hand uh, is a sweeping one and it stops at like the 60 minute mark for like a second or two and then it just jumps ahead uh, to like the two second mark and then it keeps going and that is so that if you're a train conductor and you see the clock you know when to push go right because it's kind of an interesting thing like when it, when a quartz clock has a ticking seconds hand it stops and you know when to go and when it keeps moving it's kind of ambiguous like if i'm trying to leave on time you know, it's like what 4 p.m. is, is like a moving target. So it stops there at every minute to make it possible for conductors to conveniently know when to move the, the, the train forward. And having that replicated is charming and nice. And the first time they did it in a wall clock. And then there's that Wi-Fi feature, which just makes it so you can set it and kind of forget it. Um, it's, it's an interesting little element that helps you set the clock. Um, adds a little step, but I think the idea is that it, it stays correct, or at the very least, you can just sort of change the time with your phone. So about 300 bucks, 320 bucks, something like that, maybe 315. Again, not the most expensive thing. And if you like watches and things like that, having like a Swiss Railways clock in your house 
seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah. No, I think it's an amazing looking thing. I, I'm not sure. I don't know what the railway system in the States and Hungary is like, but, you know, a stop second that stopped within about 20 minutes of when the train needed to leave would probably be accurate enough for the British railway system. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Can imagine in Switzerland at that two second window and in Japan is exactly when they do push the go button. But British railway is completely irrelevant and, uh, you know, pointless. Mm. Unfortunately, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, here, here, delays are measured uh, using calendars, not clocks. So, <laughs> you know, it's, you, you need a perpetual for, for the Hungarian rail. <laughs> so there we go. We found two other uses for chronographs, measuring the delay time yeah. on British and Hungarian railways, and also measuring the length of time to the next Seiko release, although there's not actually been one this week. Mm. As far as although somebody... You need a split second for that. <laughs> somebody did do an analysis I'll need to find the Instagram account of just how many releases Seiko had last year. And it was in the hundreds. So there we go. Maybe that can be something else you can time. Really? I'd, I'd actually like to see that um, mm. because I think that we joke about it enough. It would be great to put some hard numbers behind it just to show what it is. Because we love Seiko, but I think we all agree that they're like, genuinely hurting themselves okay uh, this is a shout out to pippy who's probably listened to the show and is my go-to seiko guy so he will almost say i don't think it was his post i saw but pippy on instagram uh, will probably have the answer to this so he's provided us a voice note in the past with the number of releases i think from 2021 so maybe he's got his 2022 numbers ready to go so do get in touch pippy Thank you, gentlemen, for the first show of 2023. After a flying start, uh, we will... Well, I didn't set a chronograph the time how long this episode was, but maybe I should have done. So thank you for joining us, everybody. Uh, do interact, as Ariel and David have suggested, with all things social media. To get in touch with the show, you'll find us at our respective Instagram channels, and you will find a blog to watch at ablogtowatch.com. Say goodbye, gentlemen. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you next time. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next time. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye.